Hi, I'm series co-host Dave Anderson, and with me today is Jennifer Brooks, the author of Resident Strangers, Immigrant Laborers in New South Alabama, published by Louisiana State University Press in 2022. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to our show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. One thing about this book, and we'll, we'll get into it, but I was just looking it over today and, and for our readers, is that I think it's a model of research. And I, and I encourage all the, all the listeners to take a look at your notes and take a look at the sources you used. I think it's an example of what can be done with all the online sources as far as census, you know, immigration records, newspapers. And I, the other thing, before we dive into the interview, as I was reading it over again, is every chapter is chock full of these stories and episodes that stand alone and illustrate your themes. It begins with this story of Dolphina Lesko. Right. Mm -hmm. And her journey from Euro Southeastern Europe to, the, um, to Alabama and to the Birmingham district. And I, I just before we start the interview, I, I, I just want to congratulate you on, on such a, a work, you know, of artistry of history. Wow, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. And, and I encourage the readers to, uh, to just dig into the introduction and, and read this story. It's just heart wrenching at times, mm -hmm. and sad and, and Yet there's a sense of, of almost victory when she reunites with her. Oh, well, I'm spoiler there. Anyway. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> right. Anyway, let's get started here. So, Jennifer, what's the book's origin story? How did you come to write it? Um, I was actually kind of in the middle of trying to decide if I wanted to turn uh, the research I'd done on the American Inca strike in 1950 um, in Tennessee into a monograph. I'd already done like a public history exhibit. I had the, the article that I was going to publish eventually. Um, but I really wanted to kind of do something different. So I was kind of stuck a little bit about what I wanted to do. And, and right around that time, which was around 2010 and then 2011, uh, the state legislature in Alabama passed the Hammond-Beeson Act, which came to be known as HB 56 which was one of the nation's worst anti-immigrant laws at that time. And I just ended up kind of in the middle of that political controversy, trying to help organize some immigrant communities in the local area and statewide. Um, my daughter is actually a first-generation immigrant. So to me, I you know, really took that very personally. And then, you know, just on the sense of general injustice also. And as I was really spending a lot of my time trying to sort of help immigrant communities, it made me think more about the place of immigrants in the South and in the New South um, and the modern South in particular, which I was already aware of in general terms, but I didn't know what the Alabama story was and I didn't really know what the New South story was. And so I decided that I wanted to investigate that history. Um, and it also allowed me to find something that I could do less traveling and still do the research because I had a child, a young child, and didn't want to kind of be gone from home for large periods of time doing a lot of research. And so I started looking into it and um, decided that there was definitely a story there that I wanted to tell and that hadn't really 
been told, certainly not told in, about Alabama, but really in many ways not told about the New South generally. And that's how it sort of began. And then I was lucky enough to find that there were really good sources actually to tell this with just the late 19th, the early 20th century to confine it chronologically to that time period, which gave it a, a much more doable scope than sort of doing a much broader chronological coverage. Yeah, and you, as you say, the 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 scope of the book and the way you structure it is, um, you know, with a chapter and intro on the themes you're going to cover and um, the um, sort of concepts that we we've, we've used to deal with both um, race and ethnicity in the New South, and then then you go through various ethnic groups and their, uh, you know, how they got to Alabama, how they were recruited. Right. Uh, with the Chinese, Italians, and and other immigrant groups as well, and also with their encounters with both employers, with labor agents, mm-hmm. and also with African Americans in the South, who who figure very centrally in this mm-hmm. book. Um, and right. and as you say, these immigrants were brought in to control and discipline African Americans. Would would you mind? clarifying that a bit, that point? Sure. So the idea of bringing immigrant laborers into the South, not just to Alabama, but to other Southern communities as well, um, is something that that starts developing during really the early years of Reconstruction, as you get, you know, with agriculture still being the predominant economic sector, not only in Alabama, but throughout the South. At that time, you get, you know, planters and farm owners who are thinking about not just that there's a labor scarcity, which they assume exists, but that they want to find a way to force their black laborers to come to the terms that they want for their labor. Um, And so it initially, this idea is sort of developing alongside trying to figure out how do you deal with the freed people? And of course, from the perspective of the freed people, they're, as we know, obviously pushing to try to get the best terms they possibly can within the limits that they face. Um, And so when you see sort of the debates about what kind of options there might be for alternative sources of labor, um, it's often in the context of, you know, white Democrats trying to figure out ways to bring in groups that could discipline black laborers and make them stay on the farm, you know, take the terms that they wanted to offer. And then it also ends up operating in similar ways in the industrial areas or the rural industrial areas, so like the Birmingham district as a way to discipline miners um, or as, you know, um, lumber workers in, you know, Southwest Georgia, um, Southeast Alabama, et cetera, to do sort of the same thing. And so there's always this type, you know, sort of relationship between the immigrant laborers and the black laborers that are within the South, but are moving around within the South as well as, you know, moving out in some cases. All right. Let's um. It too, when we talk about immigration, especially European immigration or Asian mm-hmm. immigration into the United States, the South doesn't figure prominently. For those of us who teach U.S. survey classes, will show, you know, the new immigration from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, and it's these, you know, millions of of immigrants streaming into the Northeast and to the mm-hmm. upper Midwest manufacturing belt. If, if you do see new immigrants, they'll be in the Appalachian coal country, but never 
in the Deep South. I remember doing a, a project with a student of mine on the timber workers or lumber companies in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And we pulled out a census and we were, I was looking through it and it, it marked um, workers, uh, whether they were white or black. And then I get to this page and it's all Italian. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is exactly. in 1910 census. And this was a shock. And so, you know, again, you have the caveat that the numbers aren't large mm-hmm. relative to other parts of the United States, but they are significant. And and how so? How do you see them as a significant force, particularly in Alabama, the new South Alabama that you cover? Right. So, yeah, um, so I'm a firm believer that that um, quantity doesn't necessarily guarantee historical significance and vice versa, whatever that would be. So, so the numbers, if you, if you only think of, of immigrants as significant, if they come in the millions, then, then you miss a lot and you miss the actual presence that's there. And so in, in terms of coming to the new South, you know, in some areas, there were significant numbers, you know, hundreds and thousands, but in other areas, there might just be four or five, right, in a certain community. But they're still there, and their presence matters in the sense that they're part of that community, and their presence complicates a system that particularly wants to try to structure power in restrictive ways, a system that wants to think of race as something that's either black or white, and everyone needs to fit into one of those categories. So I think that in some cases they have this sort of, you know, outsized influence in unexpected ways and not necessarily intentional ways. And their presence can be exploited and manipulated to achieve certain political ends as well, which kind of gives them more of a political influence than they necessarily may realize they had at the time. And the easy example is to take the Birmingham district and the labor strikes in the Birmingham district, which were very um, chaotic, and there were lots of them as the district developed in the late 19th and early 20th century. And really, from at least as early as 1894, um, and then my book ends in the 1920s, immigrants are a factor in those labor strikes. And even if their numbers don't match the numbers of black miners or US born white miners, their presence is used by both sides to try to influence the outcome of those strikes. So they're brought into the district um, initially um, as strike breakers, not counting those who just found their way there on their own for the job opportunities they thought they might find, you know, coming there to stay with families or, or what, what have you. And so they're sort of brought in as strike breakers, but once they're there, and start to take kind of root, they shift over time and will become members of the UMWA in later labor strikes. And so, but even as they're still being brought in as strike breakers. So they're actually a pretty disruptive force in labor management relations in that district. They are mentioned in some studies of of the labor strikes in Birmingham, but they're not considered in the sense of having shaped the outcome um, of those events. And so that would be one example. Mm-hmm. Um, another example that's probably better well-known, if you think of um, not Alabama necessarily, but a place like New Orleans, for example, 
the immigrant presence is very prominent in New Orleans. And a lot of the food that we think of as, um, you know, Creole cuisine, et cetera, in New Orleans is shaped by the presence of Italians, for example, Sicilians in New Orleans. And um, those folks relocated a lot of them to the Birmingham district um, and set up groceries in that area and in Alabama. And there used to be like a, you know, a grocery chain here called Bruno's that dates directly back to the presence of those Italians in the Birmingham district, um, just as one example. So, you know, they're in all of these communities and people in those communities at the time, I think were fairly aware that they were there, but we've kind of lost that presence over time as our understanding of the South has been, I think, you know, very restricted by a sense of it's either a black or white or black and white story. You enter into the debates about whiteness in this book, uh, mm-hmm. conceptually and thematically. Um, you know, as you start the book, there's a sense, you know, with the end of Reconstruction, and there's a sense from the Alabama landlords, it hasn't really industrialized yet, that there's a, a, a labor crisis here. Either the freed people are from the planner's perspective, aren't working the way they want and aren't aren't as industrious in the fields as they want them to be, or they're moving out right. of the areas. And so there's a sense of labor crisis. And so the initial efforts are to recruit an agricultural labor force. Later, as we move into the, the book, um, we see immigrants taking as merchants in niche Mm -hmm. markets, such as laundries, or as you say, in um, restaurants or or, um, food, groceries, and truck farming. And then we, as Birmingham in particularly, industrializes in the late 19th century, and we get mining and later iron and steel production there. They're brought in, as you say, as a uh, strike breakers are, uh, and then uh, become union people. And as you, you show that they establish, you know, I think significant communities in that area. You have mm-hmm. you, you have charts of, and, and at the end of the book, you list, you know, certain communities and, and, and immigrant workers are in the thousand immigrants or their mm-hmm. um, offspring. Um, and now, so you enter into this um, debate about whiteness and I, I, I tried to, you know, the polarities are that, especially for the, um, you know, the Chinese workers who come in, but also for the Southern and Eastern European workers who arrive, that the question is whether one, one poll is, you know, white on arrival and they're easily assimilated and, and seen as white and act, mm-hmm. you know, as if they have white citizenship, where the other view is they have to, kind of achieve whiteness or becoming white. And it's a very ambiguous category. How, how do you see this playing out in, in the book, the, the concept of whiteness and immigrants? Yeah, so um, I basically fall in the, the same kind of school that Jessica Jackson does in Dixie's Italians. Um, and her book w- came out just be- while I was finishing up mine, actually. Um, and the language that she chose, I ended up using also because I just thought it worked so well, which is racial transiency. And so, you know, I don't really hold with, based on what I saw with the idea of 
immigrants achieving whiteness. I mean, not I'm not saying that that's not the case necessarily, or the white on arrival thesis, or even the in-between thesis. The way I saw it, um, similarly to how Jessica Jackson sees it, is there's more of a moving back and forth across the pole or across the line of black and white in terms of racial identity. From the perspective of immigrant laborers, that identity is often dependent on whether they are arrayed on the side of kind of defending Southern racial traditions or whether they are expressing their agency against kind of the political and economic order. And so if they are sort of defending that political and economic order in some way, um, such as being strike breakers, they, their racial identity might be closer to the white pole, so to speak. But if they are arrayed more against those economic and political structures of power, such as being members of the UMWA, for example, or marrying into Black communities, then they're arrayed more on the Black side of that pole. And their treatment can, you know, vary as well back and forth across that. And so there's, it's really more a case of transient racial identity, depending on the circumstance. Now, I think, you know, for some groups over time, I think you can find more application of having achieved whiteness but I think my study, tent, you know, ends in the 1920s. I think it would take another study or book to look at, at Alabama, at least, to see what happens after that point, um, which, you know, Jessica and, and some others have started to look at, you know, that later time period. But for the time period I'm interested in in the New South, from the perspective of these laborers, um, they have a very transient racial identity. They, their presence really complicates things. And it's nothing unique, I should say, to say that, as you know from the larger landscape of American history, that, that Italians, for example, or Slavic immigrants, uh, French immigrants, and others um, were perceived by U.S.-born uh, white residents, often in racialized ways, um, as not white. Right. And so you, you see the same sort of pattern in the New South. The, I think what is a little what's interesting to me is how those immigrants end up sort of experiencing the sort of uh, unique legal injustices of the South and of the New South in ways very similar to um, African-Americans and poor white Southerners. Well, and it, just to let listeners know, as they read this, what I, I found the way you showed this was a very close reading of both the newspapers and especially of the legal cases or who had access to justice mm -hmm. and that those who immigrants who at times would seem to be um, sort of accepted on the whiteness side of the scale would mm -hmm. would have access to a different sort of justice or would be called by different names as as you show right. in, in your close reading of of the um so newspaper and of the uh, legal cases in particular, like, mm -hmm. it's a really fine grained reading of, of the position of immigrants mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as we move through this period. I mean, some of the stories just, you know, they're just really fascinating. The, the chapter on the Chinese, for example, I opened up with the mm -hmm. example of the, the Chinese um, laundry proprietor um, who ends up, you know, attacked in his business and beaten badly, but he is um, 
white merchants kind of come to his rescue. A white physician treats him, uh, which wouldn't have happened if he had been black at that time, of course. And so, you know, he seems to have a certain amount of favor and be closer to that white side of the divide. He he goes back to China for a little while, then comes back and ends up marrying one of his employees, a young black woman. But they're they are first jailed for their relationship. But then he's let out and they don't let her out. She gets a longer sentence. But then if he he comes in under false pretenses and manages to marry her while she's in jail, at which point they're you know both released. And so it's just it's very complicated. Yeah, and and I think you do such a you know um, a, a depth and and fine um, handling of these the precariousness of it, and as you say, the transient nature mm-hmm. of race and ethnicity at this time. Right. Thank you. Uh, yeah. As you move into the the book's chapter, the first one is on the Chinese mm-hmm. uh, immigration and immigrants who come to Alabama in in the um, latter decades of the. 19th century. One thing, and I, I think this is a theme that runs through the book, is that you know the boosters and civic leaders and politicians think that they need new sources of labor to mm-hmm. either replace or, or discipline the African-American labor. And we, we come across, which we see in several chapters, uh, the immigrant recruitment agent. And they promise the workers, and they usually, as you show, deal through a middle um, agent who has a relationship or a connection to the the sources of the immigrants, whether it's in China or it's in Europe, and they promise all these things to the workers that mm-hmm. like, we'll pay for your travel, you'll come here, you'll make these high wages, it's going to be great, <laughs> and 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 so the workers, you know, make their way all the way from you know Asia in this case and from China, ended up in Alabama. And what you tell is just a harrowing story of what what happens to these Chinese immigrants who are brought in to labor, I think, on the railroad. Is that right? The, right. Um, right. Yeah. And uh, could you tell the uh, listeners a bit about this story? Yeah, sure. So um, the the single largest group of Chinese immigrants or laborers who came to the South came in 1870, around 1,500 to 2,000 of them. And they um, most likely came from the Transcontinental Railroad projects in California and combined with possibly some that may have, have come in through New Orleans or, or Mobile or somewhere. It's hard, it's hard to pin that down. But they came and were employed to build, to do track lining and other other jobs in building the Alabama-Chattanooga Railroad. And that railroad, of course, is what allows the creation of, of, of the Birmingham district. So it bisects the coal fields and all of that. And so they were divided into a group that worked up near Chattanooga in a group that worked further south near Meridian, Mississippi. Um, and about as soon as they got here, um, they were brought in by the Stanton brothers of Boston, who uh, were responsible for building the railroad. Um, And that's a whole different story that gets into lots of corruption and the almost bankruptcy of the state eventually. But right from the start, J.C. Stanton, who was kind of the labor management for the project, really clashed with the Chinese immigrants um, who were treated horribly 
by Stanton. And so the financial troubles he encountered resulted in non-payment of their wages and with the violation of contracts that they had in hand that guaranteed them a certain, were supposed to guarantee them a certain level of treatment, including like the type of food they would get, how much food, rice in particular, this sort of thing. And so the Chinese laborers in Merid near Meridian, Mississippi, end up joining with their black and white counterparts there to go on strike in 1870 to try to force Stanton to pay their wages. And they they stop the, the railroad, which is kind of being built from the north near Chattanooga down south, and then from the south up north to meet in the middle. And they stop cars from running on the railroad and take over the cars. And Stanton ends up going down to to uh, the ones that are near Meridian and confronting them to try to force them back to work. And according to a memoir from one of his managers, um, he just beats them, several of them very badly um, and manages to subdue them and sends them back up to Chattanooga. And at least one of those individuals dies, according to this memoir. And those who either keep working on the railroad or start, won't work on the railroad, but are basically wandering around, unable to go anywhere. They were sort of promised that they would have free passage back to California or China whenever they wanted. And of course that doesn't happen. And there are reports of them sort of starving, walking around in swamps and trying to live on whatever they could find. Eventually labor agents will collect, from what we can tell, will collect them and send them to Louisiana to plantations there and even into the uh, state penitentiary in Baton Rouge to work on uh, in a cotton mill there. So they're they're gone as far as we can tell. Like they don't stay in Alabama because their treatment is so poor. And they wouldn't put up with it, basically. And everywhere that they that you know, even these planters employed Chinese laborers in Mississippi and Louisiana, for example, Arkansas on plantations, they they wouldn't stay on the plantations either. They would do whatever they could to kind of, you know, make their own income and get independent and move off the plantations. And so you sort of see a similar thing in Alabama. And so there's kind of a, there seems to be a gap, at least I couldn't find a direct connection between Chinese in 1870 and those who show up in the census in the 1880s. The mm -hmm. ones that come in the 1880s and later seem to be moving in as individuals coming to work in laundries, uh, with relatives already here or coming to establish communities. As you point out, those who establish these laundries do occupy an important place in communities. Their number aren't large, but you show this case that's rather mysterious in some sense, mm -hmm. that all of a sudden these laundry owners are being murdered. Yeah. It's never really resolved from the reason for this. Would you mind telling us just a little about that case? Yeah, uh, sure. Because I found that it was almost like a film noir when we got to <laughs> yeah, I know. or a mystery or a detective story. And yeah, it is. And I, I mean, I think part of the context to keep in mind is that the New South was a pretty violent place and rates of violence were pretty high in the New South. And in fact, most of Southern history, it's been pretty high, even in comparison to the rest of the country. I think one of the differences is that those rates of violence have tended to be between Southerners who know each other. So it's it's family violence, um, kinship violence, and, and that sort of thing. In this case, 
you've got a spate of uh, attacks on Chinese laundrymen in their places of business. It's it's especially in the Birmingham district because, I mean, part of that's just because of numbers, because there's more of them there operating these little hand-washing laundries. Uh, but it goes as far as I think there's one, at least one in Gadsden, and there may be some others that, that were there that I just didn't find. What basically happens is that these Chinese proprietors <clears throat> working in the laundries, either laborers or the ones who own the little laundries, who um, are really vulnerable um, because they live in those, usually live in those laundries, wherever the buildings are, they live in the back. And it's, and it's widely known that they live there and it's widely known that they send money back to their families. So they live very sort of um, simple lifestyles in order to save as much money as possible and then send it home to wives, children, and parents um, in China. And so there's always a suspicion that if you can get into that laundry, you might find their cash um, of money and steal it, et cetera. So the problem is that if you break into that laundry, you're going to also find the laundry man there, the Chinese man who's who's who lives there, which increases the risk that there's going to be violence. And so there's a spate of these attacks on Chinese laundry men in the early 20th century, around 1910, 1911, 1912 or so. Charlie Singh, whose story I mentioned earlier, he survives that attack, but there's several others that don't. They're actually murdered. And in one case, at least one case, um, a black man is arrested. So you, you almost get the sense that, okay, this is another case where this Chinese resident has kind of a connection to the, to the white power structure there. Um, it has this sort of relationship because they do arrest this this um, black man for the attack on him, but ultimately he's not found guilty. He's actually let go. Um, and so it's it's you know you never know how that's going to play out. Now there's another there's a there's actually another series of murders um, of Italians that happens in the Birmingham district around that time that I didn't end up going into mm -hmm. because I decided to focus more on the Gagliano incident. And my student was actually doing a paper on that at the time. So that's kind of for, you know, a different time, but so it's not just the Chinese, um, but it does seem to be pretty common for this experience to happen to the Chinese. It's not just Alabama. I ran, I ran across other cases outside of Alabama. Probably one of the most interesting cases that, you know, I don't know, I might do something with down the road was actually in Rome, Georgia. It was very similar where um, a Chinese laundryman is attacked and murdered by someone. Several Black men actually are arrested for the crime. And it, it sort of reads in the newspaper as you know, they're pretty much framed as far as you can sort of tell. And one man ends up taking responsibility for it all. And it would appear to he does that to protect other family members. And anyway, he ends up being uh, convicted, found guilty and sentenced to death. And so they hold a public execution of him in Rome, Georgia, and about four to five thousand people come to watch this public execution. It's not a lynching because it's it's hmm. unless you could, you know, it's a legal lynching, perhaps. Um, but what's interesting is the Chinese communities of Atlanta and Birmingham and uh, some other places send representatives sort of like they're sort of family members almost to go and they sit in on that trial and they go and they sit in at the public execution. 
um, which is really an interesting story. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not just, you know, Birmingham and Alabama where you see this. Well, as you mentioned, this conflict between immigrants and African-Americans, later there's cooperation in the unions, but particularly in the uh, chapter on the Italian immigrants and, mm -hmm. and the um, Gagliano case, right. Gagliano Chandler case. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Italians? Um, you know, how do they, or how are they recruited into Alabama? How do they arrive there? And, and what was this Gagliano case? Yeah, so the Italian presence comes from, you know, several different sources in Alabama and they're they're spread throughout the state but the the largest sort of cluster is of course going to be around the Birmingham district some of them just migrate up from New Orleans uh, where there's an older presence of Italian immigrants there working particularly like in the um the fruit industry in New Orleans the the citrus trade basically and some of them when they hear of uh, opportunities as the Birmingham district starts to develop in the 1880s and 1890s, they will migrate up to try to take jobs in those communities, either as coal miners or ore miners, or at, in the service industries that are feeding the miners who are coming there. And some will come down from places like New York City as the result of labor agents from Alabama going up there to try to recruit laborers to come to the Birmingham district. And then, you know, they'll move in from a few other places. Also, the ones that come down from New York City are often recruited as strike breakers as you start to get labor conflicts breaking out in the Birmingham district. Um, and they'll come in and, you know, defined groups aimed at particular moments in labor conflicts in 1904 and 1908 in particular. And a lot of them will basically not all of them, but a lot of them are from Southern Italy and, and Sicily in particular from rural communities that have been struggling agriculturally for some time. Some of them will come with backgrounds in mining already in one way or another. And the same will be true of some of the Slavic immigrants that come to the Birmingham district, but they will come and work initially as strike breakers, but then they will transition in a couple of different ways. Some will transition into union members in the coal mining UMWA, et cetera. Others will leave mining. Being a really dangerous occupation and, and kind of having some ties to the citrus trade in New Orleans and also coming from often Sicily and the agricultural rural regions of Southern Italy, many of them will try to move into agriculture, uh, but not like cotton plantation, but like truck gardening. They try to have vegetable gardens, fruit, orchards, things like that, to try to feed the Birmingham district, and they'll move into the grocery trade. And so some will be vendors, fruit vendors on the street. So this is the context that creates conflict with different groups in some of these uh, towns and urban areas. Um, and what happens with the Gagliano case is that Joseph or Giuseppe Gagliano is murdered in his fruit store and three black men are arrested either for the crime itself or because they had supposedly had knowledge about what had happened. And they will end up, one in particular, a man named John Chandler, uh, will end up being murdered by uh, Gagliano's brother, Louis Gagliano, during a funeral procession. It's kind of a complicated story that you have to buy the book to get all the details, but that's what ultimately will happen. And it creates this really interesting, tragic, but interesting moment 
that's very evocative of later moments in the civil rights movement. And so, for example, when Gagliano murders John Chandler, the police load his body still handcuffed into the back of a wagon, for example, and black citizens from the area, the neighborhood, Bessemer, will start showing up to look at his body in that wagon. And it'll be remarked that he's still handcuffed. They will go to the funeral parlor where his body is to see his body. And I'm talking, you know, hundreds will show up for that. It's very evocative, of course, of Emmett Till later. And then that when it when Louis Gagliano, even though he murders John Chandler in front of hundreds of people, literally, he will be found um, not guilty. Um, he won't even go to trial. It'll actually like a grand jury will return a no indictment on on the crime. And that spurs the black community to organize a boycott of all Italian merchants in Bessemer. And they were the primary customers for Italian grocers there. And eventually that boycott will force those Italians to shut down in Bessemer and move back to the Inslee community where a lot of the Italians lived, basically. So you have this early example um, of this of this murder and then um, the organizing of the Black community because of this conflict with immigrant laborers there. Um, and like, you know, these features that you think of as later, like the boycott and Etc. And it's actually successful. And then these Black-owned businesses will open up in Bessemer to sell groceries and fruits and things like that. In the in the next three chapters of the book, or sort of the second half of the book, is um, kind of what I, you know, for anyone who's done labor history and Southern labor history, it's about mining strikes and railroad strikes and and um, unions. And you know, it's very familiar in one way, and then is very unfamiliar in another when we look at the different ethnic groups here. And, and it culminates in this, um, this conflict during um, 1908 mm-hmm. and, and a series of violent episodes uh, in the um, uh, mining district there around Birmingham. What uh, what was this strike? How does it illustrate your themes? And and then it it culminates in a trial of 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 immigrant workers. Slovenian, I think, is the uh, although you show that their identity is rather uh, maybe a mistake here, and it right. leads to problems in the trial as far as interpretation and whether they actually those charged actually understood the charges against them or what was happening. But but they're accused of violence in this um, train ambush. Could you could you speak a little bit about the 1908 strike and and why why it was significant to to the book here? Yeah, sure. So um, the largest numbers of immigrant groups were in the Birmingham district because of the coal mining and ore mining there and all the associated industries. Eventually, the steel industry and everything um, in Birmingham. So of course, it's going to figure in you know, to the book, but it's also because um, you do have a lot of labor conflict in which immigrant the immigrant laborers play a role either directly or indirectly. Um, and so it ends up being an interesting lens into what their experience is generally in the New South and then what impact they can have, even though their numbers, as I said, don't compare to maybe if you're looking at the packing houses in Chicago or um, you know, the garment district in New York City or or what have you. Um, so 
the coal strikes in 1908, so I, they're really the two periods of time, probably the most well-known and significant strikes in the Birmingham district are 1908 and 1920, 1921. And in 1908, you basically have a strike that envelops most of the Birmingham district and, and almost all of the mines at one time or another. You have multiple mining proprietors there, you know, TCI and SLOS, but also some smaller ones that are affiliated. Um, and the strike is very con contentious. There's a lot of violence associated with the strike. The key, the key element, or I guess not key, but like the most significant violence is associated with a couple of train ambushes, in particular, the one that happens in Blockton, which is um, an outlying community in the Birmingham district, coal community. And in that instance, a train carrying some TCI officials, some state militia and strike breakers is fired on as it, it it's forced to stop on the tracks between a couple of ridges and then a lot of people fire on with you know mostly shotguns and winchesters on the train from hiding and they ambush the train and they end up killing the conductor and badly injuring some others and the train ends up pulling into uh, Birmingham proper eventually and these sort of bloodied people get off and it shocks the public a great deal and it provides an avenue to sort of gain the upper hand in terms of state officials against the strike because the violence has reached, you know, they're able to say, well, the violence has reached this level. And of course, they're more interested in being able to blame the strikers for violence than they are in, you know, investigating the violence that was happening against strikers, which was also there. What's interesting, this incident has been mentioned in a few places, but never really investigated at all. And what's interesting is when I, I found out about it and then looked into it, started looking up some documents. I have some like legal documents about the case, but also newspaper articles, et cetera, um, and even convict lease records related to this case, that the largest group of people arrested for the train ambush were Slavic immigrants. There actually was a group of African-American miners, of Black miners, who were arrested as well, and they were let go um, without ever being charged. And my guess is, in looking at some of the documents, is they someone in that group probably informed something or provided some kind of information about the immigrants. And the immigrants, there was about, I don't know, 50, anywhere from 50 to 100 who were arrested, depending on the source. And out of all of those about six actually went to trial for the murder of the conductor and the, the general attack on um, the train ambush. And so in those cases, you see this really highly racialized um, characterization of these immigrants. It also provides you a lens into what their lives were like in the Birmingham district, living in these you know boarding houses, being single men, that sort of thing. And also that there's this you know obvious collaboration between the immigrant uh, strikers and the black and white U.S. born um, strikers in the UMW in 1908 as well, um, which is very interesting. And But it's ultimately these four men, as I call them, the Blockton Four, who end up convicted of this violence and three of them receive life sentences. One receives three years. One of them is as, as young as 16 years old. 
And he had literally only been in the Birmingham district like six months, if that long, when this happened. So it's really unclear as to who's actually culpable for that event. You could never really um, definitively determine from this legal case um, who was actually responsible for what happened because no one really knows what language exactly that they speak. They appear to be Montenegrin, but they could be Bulgarian. They could be Hungarian. It's hard to say. And so they do end up going to prison in Alabama. I think a couple of them end up in the convict lease system as well. Um, and so that's the Blockton Four, as I call them. And they really kind of reflect this difficult experience that a lot of immigrant laborers had when they came to the New South um, and sort of just, you know, I kind of think of it as just kind of stepping into it in the middle of all these other sort of power inequalities and legal injustices. And the experience they have is very similar to the unjust experience that a lot of, you know, black and white, poor white Southerners ended up having in the New South. I kind of see it as like a typical New South experience for a worker. Yeah, and it confounds some of our assumptions. And, and as you say, other historians have addressed this, but the UMW is, in this case, it's an interracial organization that also includes these, uh, or has recruited um, the immigrant, the mm -hmm. European immigrant workers to their side, which... Yeah. You know, at the time seems to confound the idea that these workers could work together, although the UMW, as you say, was was rather effective, at least for a while, although, right. as you point out, they lose this strike. And uh, but, the, you know, they were capable of, of organizing across racial lines mm -hmm. and and um, ethnic lines as well. The upshot and pardon the pun here with all the violence, but the upshot is that Alabama earns this reputation as an undesirable destination right. and and how did it earn that, that reputation as you point um, well it was well deserved <laughs> <laughs> and um as much as boosters wanted to argue that they were being unfairly targeted and victimized etc i mean an obvious way that reputation gets earned is communication between people who live in the united states and their families and friends and neighbors that they write to at home, or you also have like ethnic newspapers, language newspapers and things that report on these incidents. I mean, some of it is salacious and, you know, obviously like newspapers at the time were, were eager to tell any story to sell papers, but mm. that's one way that the South gains sort of a reputation as a place you might not want to go. And of course you have the history of the civil war prior to that. And you did have immigrants living in the South prior to the civil war. Um, who are in contact, of course, with family members and, and communities in the old world. But you also have the competition between railroads who are trying to attract settlers to their particular places where they own land. And so they spent a lot of time spreading the word as they as they saw it in these maps that had the South designated as a place you wouldn't want to go because they're trying to attract settlers to the West. Um, and then you had labor agents operating in Europe and even in China and, and some other places where they're trying to attract labor for wherever they are, um, whoever they're being paid for, and they're competing with each other. And so some of them are happy to, to you know, glom on to any story that shows a, an immigrant being mistreated or, or meeting an untimely death or, or what have you and, and using it as, as propaganda as much as possible. Um, and so you do get even like 
sometimes immigrants passing through Southern communities, labor agents going to a train station and sort of scaring them to death so that they don't get off the train there, but keep going or, you know, so there's a, there are a lot of sources of that. It's not all hyperbole. As I think I show in the book, there's a reason why those stories um, gain roots, right? Because there's a lot of evidence that that immigrant laborers are mistreated. There, a lot of that has kind of been covered over with the assumption of scholars that the people that we're looking at were just white. And in fact, not necessarily depending on how you define it. And that that was really true in the convict lease. The demographics of that lease, where it was overwhelmingly Black Americans who were in the convict lease, um, and you tend to see like, oh, there's you know this small percentage of whites who are also in the convict lease. Well, when you look at what that small percentage is, I think it turns out a lot of those people are actually immigrants who've only arrived you know relatively recently, and they end up in the convict lease system. And you know, in terms of their their influence. You go back to the 1908 strike and its failure, which of course it was a, a dismal failure um, for the UMW. The breaking of that strike in terms of like attacking the 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 miners' encampments is justified by saying uh, by the governor saying that these um, encampments are violating the Jim Crow laws. That you've got blacks and whites living in the mining camps going to meetings together and that sort of thing, that becomes a, a justification to go after them and tear down the tents and everything. From what I see, a lot of the, the whites who are collaborating with the black strikers are immigrants. So they actually play an unintentional role in kind of the failure of that strike because their presence helps provide an excuse for the state militia to go in and, um, and tear down the, the, the tents and everything, the camps. Well, as you point out, and you know what we talked about at the beginning, the the numbers may be relatively small, but very significant. Although at the end of the book, as I mentioned earlier, you go through these different communities, and and you know I will say this book is a model of attention to detail, oh, and you. and you know there's nothing that seems to escape your notice. You know where you where you show in some cases there's thousands of of European immigrants in these communities mm -hmm. around in the Birmingham district. And even when you go to smaller communities, there's always an immigrant presence. And, mm -hmm. and you know, one thing takeaway from this book is that, uh, you know, everywhere you go in the South, that um, it, it, it wasn't bereft of immigration. And in right. some communities, particularly industrial communities or cities like New Orleans or Mobile, as you show, mm -hmm. there, there is a significant presence. You conclude the book with these bookends, and I, I thought this was a you know just a sharp move with this uh, anti-Catholic screed from the 1850s about an Alabama, you know, uh, you know, obviously the Know Nothing movement was strong mm -hmm. at the time, uh, uh, railing against Catholics and that they shouldn't obviously be in the area. And then you fast forward to. 2011, when, as you pointed out, and one of your inspirations for the book was the Alabama State Legislature passing the HB 56 with harsh penalties against undocumented non-citizens, you know, the harshest, I think, in the nation. Mm -hmm. And and you say, well, the problem here is that, and, and what the book's task is, is to address a, a historical amnesia and and how would you describe this amnesia? Obviously, your book addresses it, but what are the sort of the implications of it 
of, of this forgetfulness about mm-hmm. this immigrate, immigrant presence in, in the state? I mean, the obvious implication is that it misses the actual history um, that's, that's actually there, but it also allows Alabama residents, and it's not just a factor in Alabama, um, but that was my focus, but to continue to think of immigrants as outsiders and alien and somehow different and ignore the fact that, um, no, actually the state that you have such pride in was actually built by immigrant laborers as well as all the other people. Whether you want to go back to the beginning of the origins of the state as as a state in 1818, or you're looking at the late 19th century, you know, immigrants played a significant role in creating the state of Alabama and building it as the new South and the South more broadly. That's the first thing. And then I think, you know, that amnesia also ignores another factor in the debates over immigration and what brought to the fore with HB 56 and others is just the poor treatment of immigrant laborers has become kind of a historical tradition in Alabama, in the South, and in the United States more broadly, and that their racialization is, that's nothing new. Um, It goes back to um, the origins of everyone in this country, really. And I think that would be, I think that's interesting on an academic level, but it's also important in order to sort of understand and be able to judge kind of the political issues of today with the more um, educated understanding, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, and and the title of the book, This Resident Strangers, it's when it behooves politicians and, and demagogues to rail against immigrants, they're strangers. When they need their labor, they're residents, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so you finish the book with New South Alabama's immigration stories, both similar to the rest of the nation and distinctly Southern. Well, it's, it's, I think it's important not to just see this as sort of an exceptional South story. Um, immigrants were in the New South. They were here, and they were here for largely the same reasons um, and from the same places as, well, as elsewhere in the United States. So the story here is very similar to the immigrant story in Chicago or on the plains of the West or wherever wherever you find it, but their their experience in the South as laborers who were treated poorly, um, who were incarcerated, ended up in the convict lease system. They, in that sense, they're sharing what I would see as kind of a typical Southern experience for poor workers of color. But the fact that they also, you know, resisted their victimization however they could, especially with their mobility by moving from one place to another. Um, again, that that kind of is an experience that would be familiar in places outside the South, but it's also a pretty um, important part of the Southern of Southern historical tradition, that mobility and that agency on your own behalf to kind of resist how you're fit into these structures, the political and economic power. So I think, you know, the distinctly Southern part of it to me is really the story of injustice that came along with being an immigrant laborer in the South. Um, but the national part of it, you know, is also that that story is a national story as well. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I, I just thank want you. to say to listeners that this book is, as, as I was looking through the sources in this, it's a model of what we used to call like the new social history <laughs> and right. digging into those source, the census, into newspapers, into court cases, into 
you know, oh, your oral history you have here as well, mm -hmm. interviewing mm -hmm. the um, descendants of some of these original immigrants. It's everything we learned about and inspired us to become labor historians. And at this, and again, your attention to detail is just, you know, to me, uh, uh, an inspiration. And wow. Thank and you. and then you have the these anecdotes and set pieces, the narrative stories. And your empathy with the 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 subjects and your your appreciation both the like you say their victimization but also their agency you know is what drew many of us into labor history and and southern labor history and I I just want to thank you for this book and I cannot recommend it enough for for our listeners. Thank you very much, Jennifer. That's great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, hopefully people will, will buy the book. That'd be All great. right. <laughs> great. Thanks for listening to Working History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel, New Books in the American South. Email us at workinghistorypodcast at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at Working History. Working History is a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Learn more and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org. Thanks for listening.